0: Bibles to me, with, to John. John chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 35 to 47 this morning, which is also found on page 892 of the Pew Bible. John chapter 6. Before I begin reading, just want to extend thanks to Dusty uh, for preaching last weekend uh, and for feeding us with so many truths from the scriptures that echoes God's sweet promises in Zephaniah 3. Promises of of taking away our judgment. Promises of defeating our enemies. Promises of God dwelling in the midst of His people. Promises of God Himself singing over us with loud songs of joy. In many ways, my own faint heart was encouraged uh, last week what Dusty proclaimed, and I hope today's message from John will will do the same for you. So let's let's read now from John 6, beginning with verse 35. Uh, We'll remain seated this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is, this not, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. And everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for these words. And I pray that they would be sweet to our souls this morning, especially those of us who believe I pray that for everyone in this room, they would be humbled by these words and brought to faith in Christ. That they would believe in Him and come to Him and run to Him as the bread of life. Help us all to see that our eternal life is not resting on unstable grounds is rooted in your sovereign work and the infallible mission of the Son of God. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in John 6, so perhaps a little bit of a... a, We take a pause for a moment and get the bigger picture in our minds. Uh, If you recall, Jesus took five barley loaves and a few fish and he miraculously fed more than 5,000 people in one sitting and just like the rest of the miracles Jesus performs, this particular miracle was not an end in itself either. The miracle had a deeper significance. Giving 5,000 Israelites more than their fill of bread was God's way of revealing his Son's glory. To Israel. The abundant provision of bread given through Jesus was to teach Israel that Jesus and nobody else, Jesus is the true Son of God who had come for their salvation, and not just their salvation but also the salvation of the whole world, people like you and me who need deliverance from our sins and reconciliation with God. So this true bread that Jesus has in mind is not a kind of bread you merely eat to satisfy your tummy. The true bread is so much more. The true bread from heaven satisfies your entire being with God himself forever. So Jesus says in verse 27, you can turn back one page and look with me there. Verse 27, do not labor for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And then again in verse 32. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then again in our passage today, verse 35, as plain as Jesus can say it, I am the bread of life. "...whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst." So three times now, Jesus has told the Jews directly what the bread miracle was about. It was ultimately meant to point them to himself and his mission to meet Israel's and the world's greatest need. Their greatest need was not another barley loaf or even manna falling miraculously from heaven... Our greatest need is not next week's paycheck or a different house or a kinder boss or more obedient children or a different president and political majority. Our greatest need is eternal life found alone in a relationship with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's true because we can have all those other things. We can even benefit in great ways from all those other things. And yet, still perish under God's wrath for our sins. So, from an eternal perspective, which is the only perspective that really matters in the end, our greatest need is deliverance from eternal wrath and the total and total satisfaction with eternal life in Christ. And that's what Jesus says that we gain when we come to Him. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's further describing what eternal life with God is like. What it is that Jesus, as the bread of life, who's come down from heaven, really does provide for his people. The idea of not hungering and and never thirsting comes from Old Testament imagery that conveys our hearts' satisfaction with God. For example, think of the day when God told Israel why He let them hunger in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8 says that God did it. He let them hunger and then fed them with manna. He did that to humble them that he might make Israel know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Translation, true life revolves around you feasting upon God's. Self-revelation. True life revolves around you feasting upon God's self-revelation. Even during their wilderness wanderings, God was teaching them through physical bread where to find the true bread. Namely, in knowing God through His Word, through His self revelation. And here comes Jesus, the Word of God made flesh, the self-revelation of God incarnate, saying that eternal life is found by coming to Him. Life is about more than just physical sustenance and material gain. Life is wrapped up in knowing God through His Son, Jesus Christ. We are prone to believe that life is wrapped up in the things we can see. That's evidenced by our moaning at inconvenient stoplights, and our relentless pursuit of cosmopolitan appearances. So often we believe life revolves around the things we can get our hands on now, or around the 10-second sensations we can feel at midnight. But Jesus is telling us that these things never really satisfy the soul. Like the nation of Israel, we were made to thrive on a relationship with God. That's why the prophets call us away from our worldly appetites and to respond to God's invitation to truly live. Come, Isaiah says, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, the prophet says, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to Yahweh and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ears and come to the Lord. Hear that your soul may live. Hear that your soul may live. God calls everyone, Israel and the nations alike, to come to Him because He's the only one that truly satisfies. There are spiritual blessings that God abundantly possesses and that we desperately need if we are to live truly. And the only way to gain them is by coming and believing in Jesus. And when we come to Jesus and believe in Jesus, this passage says that we gain eternal life. We gain all that comes through a relationship with God to the degree that we no longer hunger or thirst. Everything we need to truly live with God, for God, under God, is granted to us in Christ. We may still be tempted to find life elsewhere, but we will no longer be endlessly and rebelliously trying to satisfy those urges with what we can find in the world. We will instead fly to Jesus time and again, knowing that only he can truly satisfy. We will go to him because only he can bring us The life spoken of in Revelation 7 where we see God's martyrs before the throne sheltered with God's presence. And the angel says of them, They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear away from their eyes. Verse 35 of John's chapter 6 says that that promise of eternal life is ours when we come to Jesus and believe in Him. We see it again in verse 37, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And again in verse 40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And again in verse 47, truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So that's the condition you must meet in order to gain eternal life. You must come to Jesus and believe in Him in order to gain God's free gift of eternal life. That means you must see yourself as, desperately hung- as a desperately hungry sinner. You must abandon your empty pursuits of worldly satisfaction, and you must cast yourself wholly into the care of Jesus, the bread of life, to find mercy and total satisfaction with God. When any sinner When any sinner under the sun meets that condition they will gain eternal life. Eternal life will be theirs forever. That's true for every person in this room. If you want eternal life with God then come to Jesus. If you want a bread that never perishes then accept. Jesus, believe in Jesus, cry out to him for a new heart that you will find ultimate satisfaction in God alone. Faith in Christ is the necessary condition to gaining eternal life, to gaining the all-satisfying relationship with God we spoke of earlier. That's the good news Jesus is telling these Jews about his person and his mission. He is the bread of life, and God sent him to give eternal life to all who come to him. But what should we make of the fact that even Jesus' own people are rejecting him? The Jews aren't coming to Jesus. He points that out in verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. They have seen him. They've seen him work the miracles and yet do not believe. Likewise, in verse 41, the Jews grumble about Jesus, much like the Israelites grumbled against God in the wilderness, manifesting their unbelief in the Lord. Verse, 31, verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So regardless of how plainly Jesus is setting eternal—excuse eternal, me eternal life before them, Regardless of how clearly he's spelling out his mission to save the world, the majority of his people are still rejecting him. So what should we say about the fact that even the Jews despise Jesus? Is not the entire purpose of John's Gospel to argue that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah? that he is the anointed Christ of God sent to deliver Israel from her sins and usher in the kingdom of God. What should we make of the persistent stubbornness of Israel's religious leaders who keep persecuting Jesus? Or what about the blatant reality that the majority of Israel rejects their all-sufficient king even after God's borne witness to him again and again and again and again? Is God's mission through the Son somehow compromised by Israel's unbelief? After all, if God's own covenant people, Israel, aren't acknowledging their Messiah, who's to say that Jesus is in his right mind at all? Or that he's the bread of life at all? He's come down from heaven as the bread of life, but does he truly give it? Jesus settles all these questions in the following verses and proves that Israel's unbelief does not compromise God's mission. Nor does their unbelief undermine Jesus' identity as the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus' confidence rests not on the approval of his own people. Jesus' confidence rests on the sovereign will of his Father and the infallible mission of the Son. And that's where he wants our confidence placed as well this morning. In other words, when you come to Jesus for eternal life, when you come to eat of Jesus' bread, what you encounter is that God brought you to the Son and that his Son secured you. For his father. That is why we gain life in Christ. The father's will and the son's will and the son's work bring us into fellowship with God without error. Jesus raises both of these points about God's sovereign will and his own son's infallible mission in the following verses. So let's look at the first point of Jesus, that Jesus makes about the sovereign will of, His Father, of the Father. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He mentions this giving to the Son again in verse 39. And this is the will of Him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. So, in both places, we see that the Father gives people to Jesus, and that giving of these people to Jesus is the decisive factor in whether they come to Jesus. So, the Father's giving of them to Jesus is the decisive factor in them coming to Jesus, in them believing in Jesus. In other words, nobody comes to Jesus on their own. They still come. They still believe. They still will. They still do. But beneath their coming and believing is God's sovereign will giving them to the Son. Nobody is morally able to come to Jesus apart from the Father's sovereign work. If you want to know how that works with the condition of faith that we just got through talking about a minute ago, verses 37 and 39 show us that the Father guarantees that all He's given to the Son will meet the condition of faith. Eternal life Is given only to those who believe. So we talked about earlier. The Father guarantees that some will believe. That's how they fit together. So by saying that nobody can come to Jesus apart from God's sovereign choice, we are not undermining faith. We're simply establishing why the faith exists to begin with. Our belief does not force God to give us to His Son. We believe because God has given us to His Son. Verses 44 to 45 then help us see how the Father gives people to the Son. He says there, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will, lay, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the way the Father gives us to the Son is seen in that He draws us to the Son. And what does that mean? I believe it's bound up with with verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That's a quotation that Jesus takes from Isaiah 54, verse 13. And in Isaiah 54, God promises a day when he would restore his covenant with Israel as a result of the the work of the suffering servant, which we read about in Isaiah 53, and which we know as Jesus Christ. He's going to restore this covenant with Israel as a result of the work of his suffering servant, which we know as Christ, and in that day, God's people would encompass not only his faithful remnant, but also people from all the nations. And what would characterize all of these people within his covenant, with Jew and Gentile alike, through faith in the the work of the suffering servant, what would characterize all of these people is that they would all be taught by God. They would all be taught by the Lord. Another way you can translate that is they would all be disciples of the Lord. That means all of them would have new hearts, receptive and obedient to the will of God. All of these people would have new hearts, Receptive and obedient to the Lord's will. They would no longer be chasing after their stupid idols. They would be running to the Lord to hear his instructions, to savor his promises, to submit to his warnings, to obey his will. The language is very reminiscent of the inward transformation associated with the new covenant and which John speaks of in terms of the new birth in his gospel. Maybe some other passages you might take home with you to to consider are Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, and then Ezekiel 36, verses 24 to 26, and then you can also read John 3, verses 1 to 8 again in, in light of those texts. So we're talking about an inward transformation here that's coming by the Holy Spirit. So the way God draws people to His Son is by causing inward transformation so that they want the Son and so that they love the Son and so that they find the Son to be beautiful Son and they believe upon the Son. Again, the only people who will ever come to Jesus are those the Father gives and draws to Jesus. No more and no less. The language Jesus uses here is nothing short of what is bound up with God's free and sovereign work of regeneration. We've seen this before. If you go back with me to chapter 1, verse look with me, we're seeing... You know, we've seen in chapter 6, Jesus already saying, whoever comes, whoever believes, whoever looks, all these, and then also God's sovereign work of regeneration. Look at chapter 1, where he brings both of these things together there as well. Chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Condition is faith. If you want to be a child of God, then he tells us where that came from. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's God's doing. Then John chapter 3, verse 16. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Condition, you must believe in the Son, and when you believe in the Son, you will gain eternal life. Look at verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly, Son, that his works have been carried out in God. See how John is bringing together both of these things? our belief, and in and beneath our belief, God's sovereign willing. So it does no good when people throw out John three sixteen to try to undermine unconditional election. It proves it. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And people are going to believe, and they're not going to perish. Praise be to God for his grace in election and regeneration. So scripture, We also want to make clear that scripture also speaks of the Father giving people to his Son in the sense of divine election. So not merely in regeneration, but also in the sense of election. And we see that in places like in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, verses 2 and 24. And we see it in Ephesians 1 three to four, which Dusty read for us last week. So the scriptures teach both realities of God's sovereign work and they complement one another. Whereas God's electing work of some to salvation occurs in eternity past, God's regenerating work happens in history through the work of His Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel indiscriminately to all peoples. So whether we're speaking of election or regeneration, it is the Father's work to save some by giving them to the Son and also drawing them to the Son. That is the ultimate cause behind our coming to Jesus. We do not owe our election and regeneration to faith. Rather, we owe our faith to election and regeneration. The Jews who are speaking to Jesus will not meet the condition of faith apart from the Father's work. If they come to Jesus, it is evidence that the Father has given them to the Son. Now, these truths, that that truth is unsettling to the natural man. It is unsettling to our flesh because we want ...to find something in us... ...that could serve as a basis of our salvation. But when we hear Jesus Jesus say such words... ...we're immediately reminded that to search for something that we did... ...to gain eternal life... ...is to search in vain. We are not a neutral people. We come into this world running fast and hard to hell... ...with no looking back. Our coming to Jesus was wholly owing to God's work in us... ...when He snatched us from the fire. We contributed nothing to Him looking so favorably upon us in Christ... ...except our own wretched sinfulness. Moreover, that God acted to give us to the Son and draw us to the Son... ...should remind us not only that we were once separated from the Son... ...but we could do nothing to help ourselves to the Son. We had to be given to the Son. We had to be drawn to the Son, and God does both according to His kind and gracious will. That means Christians should be the most humble people on the face of the planet. We must never think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Our salvation is owing to nothing of our own merit and nothing of our own loveliness. We once walked the course of this world and we're still vulnerable to the same sins as the rest of society. The only reason we're running away from our sins to Christ for eternal life is solely owing to God's sovereign doing. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He gave us to his son and he wrought the inward change which drove us to his son, even overcoming our resistant wills. We are just as deserving of hell as the rest of the world, but because of God's work we find ourselves among those undeservingly saved. How could we ever speak any truth of the gospel with a kind of pomp and air about ourselves as if we arrived at these conclusions on our own? How could we ever contend for the faith in such a manner that looks down our noses at other people as if to say our own intelligence brought us to God? How could we ever fight for Christian morals and Christian values in the public square without tears of gratitude for being the, those being called among those who are taught by the Lord? And compassionate hearts towards those still lost as we once were. In the same manner that God has shown us mercy by giving us to His Son, by drawing us to His Son, we should show mercy to others. Moreover, that God gives people to the Son should give us great confidence in the gospel's power to save. Whenever we preach the gospel to others, And they refuse to believe, or they mock us and persecute us. Our flesh is tempted to either, either to lose confidence in the gospel's power. I've dealt with this. I poured my life, my wife and I poured our lives out, and invested in this one young man a while back. Six weeks, probably heard the gospel a hundred times. No faith. You start growing discouraged. Maybe this thing doesn't work. Maybe the gospel lacks power. Our flesh is tempted either to lose confidence in the gospel's power to save or to try to fabricate conversion to Christ through additional means. And we don't have to look very far in evangelical Christianity to find that. However, what Jesus teaches us here is that there's nothing wrong with the gospel message. There's nothing wrong with what he's proclaiming to the Jews. It will save everybody God intends for it to save. The father does not forget who he has given to the son. The son does not despise any part of the gift the father gives him. And the Holy Spirit will never miss any of those the father has given to the son. Ever. He will ensure that they come to him according to the father's choice and the son's work. As people reject the gospel message of the cross, we need not water it down or add anything to make Jesus more attractive to them. Nothing we do can bring about genuine conversion. Such an inward transformation is in God's hands. Sure, We preach the gospel like crazy with fervency of spirit because it is the means by which God will bring them to Christ. But the Father ultimately overcomes a sinner's resistance by drawing them to Christ. And such a view of God's sovereignty and salvation is often accused of hindering missions and evangelism. And I believe Jesus is making the argument it's the only hope for missions and evangelism. Because of God's work, Jesus is certain that people will be saved. People will come to him. People will believe in him. People will look upon him and say, that son right there provides eternal life and I want more of him than I could ever dream. In fact, he's so confident that they'll come to him, he even plans to raise up the full number of them on the last day. The same confidence for mission appears also in chapter 10 when Jesus says that he has other sheep scattered among the nations and they will hear his voice and they will follow him. And he speaks there in chapter 10 verse 24 also that those who hear and follow him are also those that God gives to the Son. Apart from God's sovereign work of giving and drawing, the great commission will not be finished. And it would not even be possible. Sinners are too hardened to respond to the gospel on their own. But this text says that God will win all that he gives to the Son. So let us not hesitate to bring the gospel into the lives of others regularly, regardless of their unbelief. Regardless of their persecution. It is through hearing the message of God's sovereign, unstoppable mission through His Son... ...that proud sinners are humbled and brought to faith. They're not humbled by a message about them doing anything to contribute to their salvation. They are humbled and broken and brought to their knees before the Son of God... ...when they hear a message about God saving sinners. Not sinners saving themselves... Listen to Jesus' declaration to the unrepentant cities in Matthew 11. Jesus goes in before these unrepentant cities and it says that he declares this. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him talk about divine sovereignty. Talk about divine sovereign initiative in salvation. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then what does Jesus tell them? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Can we unpack it like that at Redeemer? When we go out into the neighborhoods, when we talk into our neighbors, can we unpack it like that? No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him, come to me, come to Jesus. Can we unpack it like Jesus unpacks it? Before hardened, unrepentant cities, the gospel is a message about God's sovereign work in Christ. And if anybody comes to faith, it will be through that, through that message and no other. So never should we make the false assumption that God's sovereign work hinders missions and evangelism. If anything, it empowers it with a gospel whose success depends not on the wills of men, but on the sovereign work of God himself. God is not bound by the many sins of men, but is free to save whom He will. His plans to save His elect are not frustrated by unbelief. Their unbelief only gives opportunity for Him to demonstrate His mighty power in regeneration as we preach the message of the cross day in and day out. The second point Jesus raises is that of his own infallible mission. By saying his own infallible mission, I don't mean that it's a mission other than his father's, but that it's his mission to accomplish. It's not the father's mission to accomplish. It's not the spirit's mission to accomplish. It is the son's mission to accomplish. And by describing it as an infallible mission, I mean to say that Jesus' mission to save all the father gives him will not fail. His mission will be carried out with such certainty, with such perfection, with such totality, with such omnipotence, with such submission to his father's purpose that he will lose no part of the father's gift as a result. He will save them all to the uttermost. He speaks this way in verses 37 and 39. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. on the last day. So the will of the Father is nothing short of the Son securing resurrection life for all He gives the Son. Say that again. The will of the Father is nothing short of the Son securing resurrection life for all He gives the Son. Every person the Father gives the Son will not be lost, but will be saved and raised by the Son to a resurrection of life on the last day. Jesus has come to do nothing except the Father's will. He will save no more than the Father gives him, and he will save no less than the Father gives him. All that the Father ordains to eternal life, the Son will also win. The countless multitudes from every nation, tribe, language, and people who have been given to the Son will be saved by the Son and not a single one lost. The Moravians, I don't know if you've heard this story, but the Moravians, before they went over on 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 a mission trip, they're on the boat, and one of the things, they cry out to those ...who are on the shore is that the Lamb will receive the reward of his sufferings. The Lamb will receive the reward of his sufferings. And they were pulling from Revelation chapter 5... ...where all of the creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb... ...and they sing this song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals... ...for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. They're already bought, and they shall reign on the earth when Jesus raises them up on the last day. The Lamb will receive the rewards of His sufferings. The work of the Son Renders the Father's will for his elect undefeatable. Undefeatable. And if you're coming to Jesus for eternal life, you're in the mix of those eternally secured by the work of Christ. He's not just your Savior for today, He's your Savior for every day until He raises your body from the grave. It usually doesn't take five minutes in the morning for me to encounter the weakness of my flesh. I don't know about you, but it takes me five minutes in the morning to encounter the weakness of my flesh or be tempted by the enemy toward despair. But Jesus' words lift our heads from a focus on our own weaknesses to his infallible mission. A mission that not only secures our deliverance from sin with his bloody cross, but also raises us us up to life at the resurrection of the just. If you've been given to the Son, if you've come to him for eternal life, Jesus' words imply no less than child of God, you're going to make it. You're going to make it to the day of the resurrection, and you're going to raise your body from the dead and give you eternal life. Not because of something in you, but because of the infallible mission of Christ to secure eternal life for all the Father gives to Him. That can be really helpful on, more, on, on an afternoon that you get home from a doctor's visit that you didn't... Like in which you didn't like the way it turned out. You didn't like the report that he gave. Are God's hands tied? Is God's mission in the sun compromised? Is your resurrection life on the brink of disaster? This text is saying no. This text is saying despite the cancer, despite this, despite that illness, you will make it and God will raise you from the dead on the last day. That can be helpful when you're about to see seven families and more leave our congregation as a pastor to go preach the gospel in other places of the world, Ohio and Kentucky and China, and Louisville is in Kentucky, and Oklahoma, and you're going, what's going on here? Why are these people going? Because the Father has elect. He wants brought to the Son through the preaching of the gospel and he's going to bring them through these men and women. This is not a hindrance to his mission. This is help for me as a pastor this week. I I don't want them to go and I do want them to go. God's plans are not frustrated. There are people who don't believe who need the gospel and God will see to it that he brings all of them to the son so that the son can raise them up on the last day so might you consider these kinds of things when you come again to the lord's table this morning i think we often we often come to the lord's table in this kind of spirit of oh, i could never come, I could never drink today, I could never eat today. And the whole point of the Lord's table is yes, you can. Because Christ has died and raised again, and, and his work is so complete, so sure, that on the last day he's gonna raise you from the dead, despite your sins in this life. So come and eat. Come and eat. This is a celebration. Might you consider that you don't come to this table because God has offered you mere possibilities for salvation that's contingent on whether you sin later on or not? Or even a hypothetical salvation, should you reach the end by your own efforts? Might you consider instead that you eat this bread and drink this cup because God has secured for you salvation in full? It's done. There's no more to add to it. It is because the Son secures complete redemption for all the Father gives Him that He is your all-sufficient Savior. Think of it. No sins will be standing in your way at the resurrection of the just because Christ took them all away at the cross at His Father's request. No death will be left to hold you in the grave because Christ conquered it for you at his Father's request. No wrath will await you at the resurrection because Jesus' Father told him to stand in your place and absorb it all for you. The only th- <laughs> all that awaits you on the last day is the Son's resurrection power which will usher you into the Father's glory. That's what awaits you. If you're trusting in Christ, the Lord has even sealed you with his promised Holy Spirit to guarantee guarantee that you obtain that inheritance. And moreover, he has purchased a multitude of sinners and joined you to that multitude of sinners and is using that multitude of sinners, called the church, to keep you persevering in his graces until the last day, to keep you looking to these good promises that is what we eat and drink to remember this morning eternal life is really ours as we come to Christ as the bread of life because the father's sovereign will and the son's infallible mission underlies the eternal life that he gives us despite what the jews reject And what the world considers foolishness, we who believe have tasted that the true bread from heaven will never fail us. It is not a bread that perishes. It is a bread that gives eternal life. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit guarantee it. So why don't we eat and drink to that end this morning? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would come and, in your kindness, continue ministering this word to our hearts. Your word is often too uh, much to take in at once for us, whether we're reading in our morning devotionals or hearing a sermon preached or speaking it to another brother or sister is sometimes too much. For us to take in, but I pray that your spirit would do a good work with these truths from John 6 in our own hearts, that we may be glad in you, that we may be humble servants toward other people, and that we may forever sing of your incredible mercy towards us. Though we were undeserving, you brought us to the sun. We give you praise for this now. In Jesus' name, amen.